All right. Buckle up. Here we go. So, uh, my name is Peyton Ruddick, and I have the absolute pleasure of getting to serve as the youth director here at Covenant. I have for the last three years. And before we get into today's lesson, I just want to say thank you to all of you that have students that have trusted them with me. Um, this service last three years has been one of the greatest three years of my life, and so I've really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, it's a pleasure to be up here today and getting to share with you all the Word of God. So today we are going to be reading from uh, the book of Luke, and we are going to be doing verses, or chapter 15, verses 11 through 24. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided, he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in a wild living. After he spent everything, there was severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robes and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This is the word of God, the people of God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, and we are just thankful to spend time in your house. It is always such a pleasure to be here in worship and in fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And God, we know that there are things outside of this walls that are pulling at our hearts and our minds right now. And so, Father, I ask that you would just calm our minds that you will settle our hearts and our chests, and God, we invite the Holy Spirit into this place, that it would fill us up so it may receive your word. We love you, Father. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so the parable of the lost son. Not a new one, not one that a lot of us haven't heard before. Uh, but this week, as I was trying to, to go through and sort of process this, I came to remember yet another reason why I love Jesus so much. And that's because Jesus is a storyteller. And he knows what makes the good parts of a story, right? Like he understands how to create like backstory and then set it up and have this like penultimate experience all the way to the climax and really capture us in these stories. Because that's what a parable is. It's just a story that has a moral compass. And it speaks to me because... Uh, as a Ruddock, and probably more accurately as a Dixon, which is my mother's maiden name, we have what we call show and tell. And if you ever have the pleasure of having dinner or spending a long amount of time, and if there is uh, wine involved, the, the storytelling and the show and tell gets better and better. But it is a fact that if the Dixon clan gets together or the Ruddock clan gets together, 
there's going to be some show and tell time. Um, and nothing's off limits. Uh, whether it's, um, you know, me when I was a kid and we were out and we were camping and I, we were cooking marshmallows on the fire. And, you know, as a kid, you're way too impatient to get that good roast on the marshmallows. So you just stick it right in the flames and catch it on fire. Well, we were also, you know, we used the coat hanger bent out. You know, we didn't go and buy the nice fancy ones. So I had this idea of taking it and like whipping it back and forth to get the fire to go out. And as I did it, I didn't realize that like the coat hanger and the metal gets hotter than the actual stuff around it. And so the marshmallow melted, or the wire melted straight through the marshmallow as I was doing this, and that flaming marshmallow hit me, stuck to me, and before you could save fire, I was down on the ground rolling around. Like the one thing my mom could take into account was at least I knew stop, drop, and roll. And yes, I did tell Jason this same story before he left and said, if you cook marshmallows, just remember, stop, drop, and roll. And I came up and I, you know, my mom's patting me on the back. I'm still rolling back and forth. And, and she's patting me on the back and saying like, baby, it's okay, get up. And she's laughing. And I've got marshmallow like all over my face and sticks and twigs and dirt. Or maybe it's um, one of our family favorites. And that was my mom woke up one night. This is long before I was born. She woke up one night and uh, she heard my dad and she looked over and my dad's laying in bed and he's going har, 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 har. Because he was having a dream that he was a stand-up comedian, and everyone in the, the audience was laughing at him, and so this was the audience going har-har. So anytime someone makes a bad joke in our family, it's always har-har, har-har-har. So nothing's off limits, right? And so we always did this, and I'm glad to hear you guys laughing, because that was always my big goal, was like to get my grandparents laughing, because my grandfather, Big, and my grandmother, Grandma, they both had these, um, have these amazing laughs. And you knew you got them really good if like at the end of the laugh you got that, ha, <laughs> ha, ah, me. Like, did anyone have like a, a grandparent or relative that gives that like, ah, me, if they've had like a really good hearty chuckle? And so if I got that, ah, me, I was like, mm, got him, rolling, we're done. Like, I won show and tell this week. So the fact that Jesus, if we go back to the beginning of chapter 15, we get the backstory on where we get to at Lost Son. We start at 15, and it says Jesus is surrounded by tax collectors and sinners, and the Pharisees are there. And so Jesus is talking, and, and these Pharisees are talking. It actually says that um, he heard one of them mutter. One of the Pharisees and teachers of the law mutter. So you can almost like hear it in your head, like mutter under his breath, and say, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them? And Jesus, instead of like stopping and rebuking him, he kind of hears it and he launches into these stories. And he gives us three stories. And they're all three ones that we know very well. The first one is the story of the lost sheep, right? So the shepherd has 100 sheep and one of the sheep goes missing. And so he leaves the 99 to go find and track the one down. He gets it. He comes back. He calls his neighbors, and he rejoices with them. And Jesus says, when one sinner repents, the heavens rejoice. And then he goes into another story. And he says, there's this woman that had 10 coins. And she lost one of the coins, and she takes her lantern, and she looks all over the house. And we can all relate to this, right? Like, I have a thing on my desk that has, like, 40 pens in it. But I have one pen, one type of pen in particular, this pen, that if I can't find this pen, like, I won't write. And so I'll look throughout the entire house for this pen before I write down, like, the one note that really was meaningless and I already have memorized in my head anyways. 
So we can relate to this, right? So she goes and she tracks down this one coin. And after she finds it, she calls her neighbors and she has them come and rejoice and celebrate with her. And again, Jesus says, when one sinner repents, the heavens rejoice in this way. And then he gets into our story for the day. The story of the lost son, or as we've come to know it in more recent times, the story, or the parable of the prodigal son. And so we got into this, and, um, you know, so the, the quick overview of the story that we just read was, there's this son, he asks for his inheritance because he thinks he knows better than his dad. He goes out, he spends it frivolously, he finds himself in need, he tries to work for a dude, that doesn't work, he finds himself starving, and he goes back to his father. And, you know, we always associate this story in terms of the greater story of the whole prodigal son, right? Where we get the good son, the father, and the bad son, or the lost son. I almost said the bad son, the lost son. And I've always heard it taught this way because I feel like as the audience, you pick which character you can relate to the best. And so when Zach came to me and said, hey, I want you to get the parable of the lost son, I was like, got it. And he was like, but I want you to stop at verse 24. And I was like, hold on a second. All right, what are you trying to say here? Because that's the reckless one. <laughs> and a lot of us do the same thing, right? Like we, we associate with one side or the other, and most of us associate with a good son. So as I sat down to do the reckless son, I started digging. I'm like, all right, I got to come up with some kind of a story that'll help me relate to this. Let's dig into that show and tell. And if you've been on a mission trip or you've been on um, a youth camp or maybe you've just heard a, a guest speaker come in and teach this before, there's these huge stories of, of you know, recklessness, of drugs or crime or whatever it is of hitting rock bottom. And y'all are probably expecting me to give one of those because if you've heard stories about me from your students, it can sound like I might be a reckless person. I like to push extremes. I, I grew up snowboarding. I grew up playing hockey. I grew up playing football. I like to play things that are more in the extreme level. And I started thinking, and I realized I'm not really a reckless person, though. I like to push extremes, but it's always calculated. And so, like, the most reckless thing I could come up with was growing up in Iowa. Yes, I grew up in Iowa. I was born in Texas, though, so I do still get to claim being a Texan. Um, but growing up in Iowa, I snowboarded a lot. And there was this place that we always called Boone because it was in Boone, Iowa. I don't know what the actual name of the hill was. But it was a big hill because we have no mountains in Iowa, just lots of big hills. And if you're looking at this hill, you'll have to look behind me and think. If you're looking at this hill, on the left-hand side, there was like this one big kind of ramp. There's kind of some spot that you can um, just ski down gently in the middle. And over the right side were some little ramps and some, some rails. And that was where me and my friends hung out pretty much this entire day. And I kept looking at this big ramp. And I kept watching people go down, and they'd, like, stop and check their speed until they were, like, 25, 30 feet above this ramp. And then they'd, like, slow roll down on their snowboard and pop up over this ramp and get about that much air. And as a teenager, I was like, that's not hitting a ramp. Like, if you're going to hit it, commit. And so towards the end of this day, I was like, you know, I've hit ramps bigger than that in Colorado. I'm going to go hit this ramp. So I get to the top, and I'm stopped at the top of this thing. And I just bomb it. Don't check my speed. Don't take any turns. Just straight nose down, go for it. And y'all should understand that like when you're building a ramp, there's two types of ramps. There's a ramp that launches you out, and there's a ramp that goes verted and throws you up in the air. 
this ramp was not made by a ramp building expert. So it was like just not quite vertical. And so I hit this ramp at full speed. And as I'm doing it, I feel my bottom half get lifted up above me. And all of a sudden, I'm looking at a world of white below me. And in my head, like, I, I swung into it and tucked my legs and, like, went into the backflip and almost landed it. And I'm pretty sure in reality, my board and arms and legs were just flailing everywhere as I got thrown upside down thinking this is how it ends. And was fortunate enough to hit an edge enough where it could, I could say, like, I almost landed it. I didn't almost land it, y'all. And then slam my knees in the ground and somehow get back up and at least make it down like this where my knees were wobbling because of adrenaline and pain. But again, I started thinking, was this reckless or was it just a miscalculation? And then I started diving into like, what is recklessness? Because recklessness doesn't have to be hitting rock bottom. It doesn't have to be spending or, you know, hitting or being strung out on drugs or, or getting into crime or all these things we think of when we think of the lost son. It doesn't have to be taking our inheritance and spending every last dollar and going into debt. We're reckless every single day with our perception of others, with our perception of ourselves. And on top of that, I started thinking, what, what inheritance is Jesus really referring to here? Because inheritance in the story, obviously, is, is the money he got from his father, right, that he was entitled to as the son, as the second son. But inheritance that he's speaking to and really speaking to is the inheritance that we get with our relationship with God. And y'all, we're reckless with that on a daily basis. But even if you can't associate with that, right? Like, so maybe I'm still saying this. You're like, I still don't associate with the lost son. The very next part of this, so the son's been reckless, right? He's lost everything. And in... Uh, Man, I didn't write down the verse on my notes. I'm so going to have to look through this. In verse 14, right at the end, he says he began to be in need. Now, being in need is something that every single one of us can associate with. I have a four-year-old who on a daily basis needs a new dinosaur toy. <laughs> I have made it very abundantly clear that for Father's Day next week, I need a new fishing pole. My youth tell me how they need that car or we need that new house or we need that secure 401k or we need that approval of somebody else. But we find ourselves in need all the time. And just like the lost son, we try and fulfill that need ourselves. He went and he hired himself out to a man and said, man, I can work myself back out of this. And we do that, right? And, we, and we, so we, we find these needs. I need this new fishing pole. And I'll get that fishing pole, maybe. I'll try and she's going to be here in the next service. And I'm going to like, you know, give her one of those. Make sure I'm pointedly like, need a new fishing pole. But after I get that new fishing pole, I'm going to need something else. And I'm going to need something else. I'm going to need something else. And so we start feasting on these needs and our ability to fill these needs and we find ourselves never feeling fulfilled. We find ourselves starving for something else. 
for something that goes beyond these worldly needs. All right, y'all. Time for some more show and tell. So I felt like we were getting deep there, and I got to, like, stop and bring levity to the situation. So I grew up in Marshtown, Iowa, and like I said, I grew up playing hockey. And the closest big city to Marshtown, Iowa is Des Moines, Iowa. It's not Des Moines, it's Des Moines, Iowa. I'm going to help you all out there. So in Des Moines, Iowa is where you kind of go. And so a lot of my hockey tournaments were in Des Moines, Iowa. And uh, we'd go over there, and hockey tournaments are like you play three games in a day, but you have a lot of downtime throughout it. And a hockey rink is a lot like a cave. So you just have to get out of there when you have time. And one of our big things that we do is we'd go to TGI Fridays. This is like back in the day, TGI Fridays, when the food was still decent and like they had all the cool stuff on the walls. I know it's kind of changed now. The last time I think I went in there, I kind of looked around like, this ain't TGI Fridays. But we loved it. My parents loved it mostly because my brother and I were fascinated by all the junk on the walls and there was enough decent food that we could all eat and be calm and have fun and be collected and they didn't have to deal with, like, kids running around and going nuts because we were just, you know, seeing butterflies. And this particular Sunday, Saturday um, at TGI Fridays, they had the local arena football team there. And um, they were doing, like, a thing with the kids where if you threw the football and you hit a target, you got a Polaroid. Okay, so for my youth, like, a Polaroid is this picture that instantly develops and you'd, like, wave it. And hipsters are using them now, but... So I got the Polaroid, and you got a Polaroid with the quarterback from the team, and he signed it and wrote, like, a nice little note on you after it developed, and that's what you got. And, I mean, you got as many throws as you want. So basically every kid got this Polaroid, and this particular quarterback was also bagging groceries at the local Hy-Vee at the time. So for any of you big football fans, that should have been a key indicator to who this guy was. For those of you that don't know, his name was Kurt Warner. And about three to four years later, he went from being the third-string quarterback on the St. Louis Rams to, in that same season, getting the first-string job because everyone else got hurt, becoming the national football MVP, becoming a Super Bowl champion and the Super Bowl MVP, and a Hall of Famer. And so we're watching this whole season develop, and he wins the Super Bowl, and I still remember at the house, like, running back into my room to look at my bulletin board and find these photos, What you should also know is my mother is a very clean person and not a hoarder. And so over the course of the three or four years of this, you know, random dude that was an Iowa barnstormer, she had thrown these pictures away. And, you know, we were upset in the moment, but it wasn't like it was something that we had had prized possessions that now were even more prized kind of thing. It was junk that was now just kind of this cool story that we wanted to go see. So we were like mad at my mom, but she felt horrible. And we still like give her a hard time every once in a while to this day. But we never like held it against her. But my mom felt horrible. And so to rectify this sin against us, she went and she like called Kurt Warner's people and was trying to like get some more signed photographs back. And they were like, we don't really do that, but thanks for calling. So she tried to rectify this situation. And that is something that I think we all can do, right? Like guys, married men, y'all are with me here, like flowers, letting her go get a manicure or pedicure because you screwed up, taking the kids for a night or a week or a weekend, like, we, we screw up, and we immediately are like, all right, got to make a stop at H-E-B on the way home. Hey, babe. So we, we sin, and we try and, and work our way out of it. 
And that was the son's idea, right? So he comes to this idea in verse 18. And I love this, and I think Jesus sets this up perfect. He says in verse 18, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I'm starving to death. I'm gonna go back to my father and say to him, so he comes up with this full plan, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. Let me earn back what I get. So he has this whole plan and he, he sets out and he goes home. But what he's met with is something completely different than what he expected. He expected to walk up in shame and to you know, hang his head and to present himself low. And what he finds is his father running to him in compassion, throwing his arms around him, kissing him. And we've all had that, right? Like, like my mom where she threw away, where she sinned against us, where she threw away these things, she felt like she needed to tell us she was going to fix it, even though we didn't really care. The only reason I tell that story is because it's a funny story where I got to meet Kurt Warner before I knew who he was, before anyone knew who he was. So we all do this. It's just an innate thing we have where we feel like we have to fix it. And so the son does it. Like even though he's been caught up with love, he's been filled with, or he's been grieved with compassion, he still is like, but hold on, I got to get this off my chest. And so he sets off into it. And you, you can tell there's only one key difference. So after he kisses him, he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned against you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And in my mind, the father like full-on Kanye wests him. Like he's like, I'm gonna let you finish. But first, <laughs> servants, come, bring robes, put them around his shoulders, put rings on his fingers, kill the fattened calf and let's celebrate. This shame that he thought he was going to have to deal with, his father completely negates. His father loved him. His father almost knew that this moment was going to come. He was waiting for it. He was expecting it. He was ready to greet him with a love that was almost premeditated. Sound familiar? Jesus said in Matthew, my father knows your heart before you ever say a word. Paul says, that God knows the groanings of our heart before we ever even say them. So he tries to earn his way back in his good graces and his father his father greets him in a way that sets up the greeting that we get from God. So now we start seeing that each and every single one of us can relate to the lost son. Recklessness doesn't have to be hitting rock bottom. Our inheritance doesn't have to be money. And Jesus set this up. Like, we remember, when we go back to this backstory, Jesus sets it up and he's, he starts giving stories about possessions being lost, right? Like a sheep and a coin. And if we go back to the backstory, the Old Testament, we're referred to as God's people, God's chosen people. A possession, right? Kind of like a sculptor who makes a sculpture. And then Jesus came and he completely flipped the dynamic. Jesus came and when he went to the cross, 
he said, you are now children of God. You are brothers and sisters in me. You are worthy of the inheritance that was meant for me. We've all received that inheritance. And each and every single day we go about our lives and, and we sin and we make bad decisions and then we come back and we repent. And when we do that, we, we still like, we repent, but we feel like we have to earn, right? Whether it be maybe adding a little bit more in the, in the offering plate or making sure I read a little bit more Bible or maybe it's making sure that I treat someone a little bit better and have to earn my way back into his good graces, but God doesn't bother with all that. He sees his lost son. And Jesus ends this with a perfect description of how he sees us. We were dead. His lost son was dead like a possession. And now he's alive again. His son, his daughter, his children. Every single one of us is worthy of that inheritance. And every single one of us, as soon as we repent of our sin, our Father greets us with a perfect, premeditated love. That was the same before we sinned, the same during our sin, and the same long after we sinned. It is never changing. It is always there. It is always available for us. It is perfect in every way, shape, and form. Just the same way that the Father loved his lost son when he came back. So Jesus does this one last thing at the end of uh, this story that I love. And I'm a big like TV show movie person. Like I actually am a photographer other than this job. And so I take photos of celebrities and entertainment. And so I love just TV and storytelling, right? And uh, I'm not a big fan of the show, but I love the way that they ended it. My brother turned me on to it, the show The Sopranos, which I'm pretty sure that's the first time that has ever been referred to up on this stage. But the show The Sopranos, I wasn't a big fan of it, but the ending was like movie TV show history. Because at the end of this show, like they have these guys come in, and you have Tony Soprano who's like the godfather of this mafia family, The Sopranos, and the screen goes black, and then there's gunshots. And that's how the entire series ends. It leaves it on this cliffhanger. And it allows us to fill in, like, what do we think happened? Like, do we think Tony got away, or do we think Tony got God? And Jesus does the same thing here for me with the lost son, because he ends it with just this, my son was dead, and now he's alive in me again. We never get what happens to the son. We never understand what he does with that inheritance now that he's a son again. It's just left with a question. After receiving that kind of perfect love, and we've all experienced love in some way, shape, or form in our lives, and we know how it affects us. So after receiving that perfect love, what happened in that lost son's heart? How did he react to being made a full son again? And so I want to leave that the same way with y'all. I want to ask y'all, now that you know that if you repent, you get to rejoice alongside God, that he's going to greet you with compassion, with open arms, with a kiss. What are you going to do 
with how that love affects you. Let's pray. God, we come to you and we rejoice alongside you this morning. We thank you for showing us a love that is unending, that is enduring, that, that never gets complicated or needs to be vindicated. It's just perfect. And Father, in that perfection, we just thank you. We thank you for making us sons and daughters again, for giving us your son and for giving us the commitment and the faithfulness that you show us by sending your son to the cross so that instead of being your possessions, God, we get to be full sons and daughters again, alive in Christ. No longer dead, but alive in him. And Father, we thank you so much for these gifts that you continue to give us that we don't feel like we've earned, we don't feel like we deserve, and yet our actions never separate us from you, God. We thank you for chasing us down. We thank you for making us whole. Father, we love you. We love you so much. As in your heavenly name that we pray. Amen.